We read John chapter 6, 66 to 71. John 6, 66 to 71. You have words of eternal life. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we pray that you will sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. We want, Lord, to be sanctified unto salvation, not merely listening and hearing these words, but truly believing and obeying them. Sanctify us, Lord, forever by these words. May we also declare with Peter, you have words of eternal life. Therefore, to whom shall we go? May it be, Father, that we only put our trust in Christ, not in ourselves, not in others, and not in anything else. In Christ's name, amen. This is now the conclusion the conclusion to this chapter, the feeding of the 5,000 and the aftermath of that, along with the discourse that Christ had with the crowds, the multitudes, after he fed them. He has reiterated that he is the source of eternal life. He is the bread of life. He is the water of life. They must partake of him in faith. He has emphasized this point. Well, we saw last time that they grumbled about this. They grumbled about this. They did not want to believe. And here in verses 66 to 71, they finally leave him. They dialogued with him for a while. They grumbled for a while. They mused and thought about it for a while. But now they walk away. They walk away and then we see what Jesus does, his response to their departure. We see Jesus' response to their departure primarily in our paragraph today. And when he does respond, he does not chase after the multitudes and beg them to stay. He turns to his disciples to encourage and to challenge them. To encourage and to challenge them. That's his focus. Let's pick it up at verse 66. As a result of this, Many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. The many who withdrew are those that were dialoguing with him in this discourse in chapter 6. They followed him across the sea. They followed him to the synagogue and they were listening to him teach about himself and the way of salvation. He offered to them eternal life. He said that he is the bread of life, verse 48. He says that if you believe, you have eternal life. This is what you would have in verses 47 and 48. In a nutshell, the whole chapter is an offer, an exhortation for everyone to believe in him. In verses 47 and 48. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. That's very simply stated, very openly, very plainly stated. You want eternal life? Then believe in me. I am your source of eternal life. Yet they grumbled. Yet they did not believe. Yet, even by verse 66, they walked away. And they were not walking with him anymore. It's not that they walked away because momentarily they couldn't stand what he was teaching. But it was permanently that they walked away from him. They would not follow him anymore. What happened? 
They heard things they did not want to believe. They heard things they did not want to obey. They did not want to put their confidence in Christ. They wanted their confidence in something else or in someone else. Therefore, eventually, though they said that this is a difficult statement, who can listen to it? Verse 60. Though they grumbled in verse 61, and even in verses 41 and 42, they grumbled. Though they grumbled, eventually these grumblers separated from Christ. They could not tolerate being in the presence of Christ. And remember, they are called disciples. Verse 66, his disciples. They're called his disciples because temporarily they followed him. They're not called disciples because they permanently followed him, but temporarily followed him. These days we use the phrase nominal Christian or Christian in name only. We say that about people who claim to be Christians, but they temporarily embrace the faith. They temporarily confess or profess faith in Christ, but they don't permanently throughout their life and consistently produce fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their life. And that's why we call them nominal Christians or Christians in name only. That's what we say. So-called Christians, we call them. And that's the same in the Bible. That's who they were right here in our chapter. They were fickle followers of Christ. They did not want to stay with him and stick with him. John illustrates this throughout his book. He illustrates that these kinds of people existed throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ. And this is a scriptural doctrine. It's not only a Johannine doctrine here, but it's also a scriptural doctrine. A couple of examples within John, and then a couple of examples elsewhere to reiterate this truth that those who claim the faith are not always those who actually believe that faith. They might say so, they might think so themselves, but they're not so in reality. In the book of John, let's turn to chapter 12. John chapter 12. John 12, verse 42. 1242, Christ is speaking of himself and the response of the people that they would not believe. 1242, nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. It says in verse 42, the rulers, many of them believed in him. Many believed. Believed what? Well, believed such as chapter 2, 23 to 25, that he was able to perform signs. Believed just like Nicodemus in chapter 3, John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, that he is a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Or even believe, just like the multitudes, the 5,000 in John chapter 6, verse 14, this is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world, because Jesus performed a miracle with them by feeding them, the multitudes. So they believed in those ways, in those superficial ways, but they did not believe unto their salvation. We know that because they had this timidity in verse 42. Because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. They did not want to be excluded from the community of the synagogue, from the worship assembly in the synagogue. They did not want to be thrown out. Therefore, they would not open their mouths and say they believed in Christ. 
which is an evidence of their lack of true faith, their lack of permanent faith, their lack of enduring faith. They did not possess it. And verse 43, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. They loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. In the Greek language, it says they love the glory of men rather than the glory of God. They love the glory that is the praise. They love the flattery. They love the adoration of others. They wanted their approval rather than the praise of God. God saying to them, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of of your master. They did not want that. They did not consider that to be something great and good. They were like we read in Jeremiah 18, 18, 12. They said, it's hopeless. It's hopeless for we're going to follow our own evil ways and the stubbornness of our own evil heart. They are so shameless that they have the audacity to say, that they're going to follow their evil ways. They're going to follow the stubbornness of their own evil hearts. No shame to say that openly. In this case, why would people do it in John 12? Because they wanted the approval of men. That's what happens. They wanted the glorious praise of men. Therefore, they did not believe. So when people do not believe, what do they do? 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, also written by John the Apostle. When they don't believe, how do they behave? We know that they grumble. We know that they say in their own words, this is hard, this is a hard teaching. This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? This is a tough doctrine. How can we believe anything like that? I'm not going to believe that. They say words like that. But then finally, what do they do? 1 John 2, 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. Notice this curious way in which John the Apostle writes. He first tells us the fact they went out from us. They departed. They walked away. They didn't remain. They didn't stay with us. They went out from us. They went out, but he says, but they were not really of us. They were of us in the physical way. They were of us in the superficial way. They were of us in the temporary way. They claimed to be brothers in Christ. They claimed to praise the Lord with us. They claimed to be believers and to follow Christ along with us. They did it temporarily but they weren't really of us. They said the same words. They conducted worship with us, or they worshiped along with us, but they weren't really of us. Why? For if they had been of us, if they had been of us, if they truly did belong to us, the true people of God, the remnant, if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. Correct? If you truly do belong, why would you kick and scream? Why would you jump? And why would you lash out? And why would you walk away from the true family of God, the true people of God, the chosen of God, the beloved of God? Why would you want to walk away from that? If you have tasted something that's extremely good, it's truly good, then why would you walk away from it? You know how that is. After we have tasted the best of a certain food, 
We t- taste a second-rate version of it later on, and we say, we don't want that anymore. We want the first-rate, the first-class experience of it. In the same way with the Christian life. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out. Why did they go out? In order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. They did go out. They did separate. Why? In order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. It must be shown, it must be demonstrated that all people who claim the faith don't actually believe in the faith. It's necessary to show it. It's necessary to demonstrate it. Necessary for whose sake? For whose benefit? Firstly, for our benefit. Secondly, for their benefit. Firstly, why? Or or for their destruction, I should say. Firstly, for our benefit. That is, we need to have confidence. We need to have assurance. Who truly does believe? Because when we behave a certain way, when we believe a certain way, why is it that everybody does not? And then we become curious and sometimes doubtful. Am I really believing the truth? Do I really belong to God? Am I really saved by God? Am I one of his chosen ones? Will I have eternal life forever and ever? Will that happen to me? We wonder about that. And so, when those who depart, when those who are divisive, when those who are contentious and factious, when they leave us, it becomes clearer to us who we are in relation to God and who they are in relation to God. It becomes clearer. Now, I said for our benefit. Why? Because we need to be assured. We need to be encouraged. We could become despondent and discouraged when people walk away. And we wonder, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my beliefs? Why do they not like me? Why? They said they loved me. They said they were my brothers. They said they enjoyed our, our company then how is it that they could easily, suddenly, just walk away? Sometimes quietly, and sometimes with an explosion. Sometimes quietly, and sometimes with upheaval. That's how people walk away, right? Why did they do so? So that we might be encouraged by the truth that we believe, knowing the way things are. That's why. Now, I also said to their detriment or to their destruction. To their detriment or destruction. Because eventually, on the day of judgment, what they have done against the truth and what they have done against the people of God will be held accountable by God on the day of judgment. And their punishment will be worse on the day of judgment. Because they walked away from the truth. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to walk away from the holy commandment delivered to them. For it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Second Peter 2, 2 Peter 2, 20-22 teaches that doctrine, that their punishment will be worse because they walked away from the truth and the people who possess the truth. Now that raises the question, are we the only ones with the truth? Well, what is it that they're walking away from? 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Verse 6. 1 John 4, 6. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. 
By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. He declares that we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. If we're of God, those who are of God would also listen to us because what do we have? We have the spirit of truth. We have the truth. So if we believe the truth and they believe the truth, then we would be happy hearing the truth. But because they don't have the truth, they reject the truth that we preach, therefore they don't listen to us, and if they don't listen to us, they're not listening to God. The issue is not so, matter, uh, so much the matter of, are we the only ones who believe? No. The issue is, what is it that we're preaching? Are we preaching the truth? That's the fundamental issue. If we're preaching the truth, then those who love the truth because they know God will cling to that truth along with us. But when they don't want the truth, they would rather have the spirit of error, the spirit of falsehood, the spirit of Satan, the spirit of demons. They'd rather have that than when they hear the truth, it bothers their ears. It bothers their consciences. They know they can't keep listening to it and be sitting there listening to it and be happy about it. So they want happiness. They want fickle happiness. So they walk away so that they don't have to hear somebody saying the truth, preaching the truth. That's the point the apostle is making in 1 John 4, 6. Where the preaching of truth is, there will inevitably be people who walk away from it. And when they walk away from it, they're not only walking away from us, they're walking away from the truth and they're walking away from God. And if you follow the behavioral patterns of people who do this, if you follow it, if they keep in touch with you, you hear about their circumstances, inevitably they are going to some false church or not to church at all. That's what they end up doing. They end up going to a place that denies the truth or to no place at all. They withdraw and walk away. Now, we might become stunned and discouraged when that happens to us. But it happened to Christ. It happened to Christ with the multitudes in John 6. It says many of his disciples were not walking with him anymore. It happened to Christ. Christ, the perfect one, the master, the teacher, who spoke no falsehood, who had no false interpretations, the one who could articulate himself better than anyone because he was God in human flesh. He was perfect in his morality. He was perfect in his orality. He was perfect in every way. And they still had the audacity to walk away from him. If they do so to him, it should not surprise us if they do so to us. Don't be discouraged by it. Don't be alarmed by it. Was Jesus alarmed? Notice John did not tell us Jesus' response to the multitude. Jesus turned his attention to his own 12. It says in verses 66 and 67, after saying they walked away, verse 67, Jesus said, therefore, to the 12. What do we not read? We don't read of Christ yelling and screaming and telling them, no, 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 come back. Let me tone it down. He does not run after them and say, no, 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 let me say it in a better way. He does not say, no, 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 let's come, come back and let, let me perform another miracle to convince you. He does not say, let's come back and let's, have, uh, uh, let's do some joint fun activity together so that we can soften the blow. Let's restore our relationship. He doesn't do any of that. We also note on another occasion 
Luke 18. Luke 18, how Jesus behaved similarly. Luke 18. Luke 18, verse 18. The rich young ruler. And a certain ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, The things impossible with men are possible with God. The parallel in Matthew 19, 19.22 says, of what the rich young ruler did. It says in Luke, he became very sad. Matthew 19, 22. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. Not only does it say he was grieved, he went away grieved. He walked away. In both cases, in both accounts, and even in the Mark and one in Mark chapter 10, nowhere do we read in this incident of Christ saying to him, wait a minute, I was a little excessive with you. I was over the top with you. I told you to sell all that you have and give to the poor. I should have said, Sell most of what you have. Sell half of what you have. Sell some of what you have. Sell a tenth of what you have and give to the poor and come follow me. I shouldn't have said it that way. Jesus does not renege. He does not compromise. And then he lets the man walk away grieving. He lets him walk away. This is completely contrary to the way the preaching of the gospel is today. Instead of just announcing the truth and doing the best we can to preach faithfully this word of truth to people, whether as individuals or groups, and let God do whatever He's going to do with dispensing the truth of the word by His Holy Spirit, converting whomever or even nobody, and rarely a bunch of people. When that happens, when we dispense the truth like that, we just let God do His work and then we move on to our own work. We move on to our own business. Not being anxious, not being discouraged by the way people respond to it, we're behaving just like Christ. That's the way we need to be. Instead of being so anxious about the lack of response or even compromising the truth, which so many do, in order to attract the masses. So many people compromise the truth. They don't preach repentance. They don't re re uh, preach the necessity of faith in the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. They don't preach that. And because they don't preach it, and they add many things to what they say and do, Therefore, they have huge churches. That's not what Christ was after. That's not what his apostles were after. Instead, we see Jesus give attention to the small group. Verses 67 to 71. 
He gives attention to the small group. And he challenges them to think about their faith. 67. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? He challenges them. Do you want to go away also? This is going to bring to their mind, bring to the surface their thoughts about what they're seeing. About what they're seeing as people walk away. And he's causing them to contemplate, causing them to think seriously about what's going on in the situation. What do you believe? Do you also want to walk away with them? If so, then go ahead, is the point. If so, then go ahead. I'm not going to twist your arms. I'm not going to arrest you. I'm not going to put you in chains and stocks. I'm not going to do something like that and beat you up until you confess that you believe in me. God doesn't work that way. He doesn't work that way. But he does challenge us when the incident arises, when the separation, when the division arises, he does challenge us to think about what's going on. Do you want he when he says it in the negative, he's saying you don't really want to do this, which he understands they don't want to do that. And none of them did do just like the multitudes with the one exception, Judas Iscariot, in terms of lack of faith. But otherwise, of the twelve, eleven did not do so. And Jesus knew that, as we know from later in this passage. The point, whenever conflict arises, contemplate the conflict. Contemplate it and ask yourselves, what's going on? And what do I believe? Confirm your faith and continue in that faith. Confirm the faith, continue in that faith. That's what should happen. We should not follow the crowds and we should not be discouraged because we just lost a friend. We just lost a member of the family. We should not let those things discourage us. Jesus taught that we will have even more family and even more friends and even more possessions because of our faith. Which passage in Luke 18 explains at the end of it. Matthew 19, Mark 10, and Luke 18, they all explain that in the family of faith, we have so much more that's better than we had with our natural friends and our natural family. That's what we should think about. And Peter does so. Peter does so and responds appropriately. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter, Simon Peter, This is how he is typically known. Either Simon or Simon Peter or Peter. Not Cephas. Even though Cephas in John 142 translated means Peter. He's usually known as Simon or Peter or Simon Peter. And in this case, as typical in in the New Testament... Peter, if others are around, Peter is the one who usually speaks up. Now, people, interpreters, take this to mean that Peter is the one who usually puts his foot in his mouth. That he is unable to control his thoughts and his words. But I don't take it to be that way. I take it to to mean that Peter was the spokesman though there's no single verse that says he was the spokesman, that he typically had the ability to speak and to articulate himself more than the others did, and that's why he spoke up. They probably designated him that way. Even on the day of Pentecost, for example, Acts chapter 2, who is it that speaks up, even though there were 12 apostles by then? It was Peter. Peter who spoke up, and he preached that sermon where 3,000 
people were saved from one sermon in the midst of a great multitude of those visiting Jerusalem. So Peter, I think, was more the leader of the group, at least the spokesman of the group. And this is probably why Peter spoke up. And it says, according to verse 69, um, we have believed. We have believed. So he's speaking on behalf of the rest of them. We have believed. Um, for ex- uh, let me give a negative example of the same with Peter. You know how people uh, usually blame Peter for saying that I would never deny you, Christ. I would never deny you. But then um, Peter does end up denying Christ. Well, let's look, for example, at Mark. Mark, and we find it at... Um, Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14, 27, 14, 27 to 31, 14, 27. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that you yourself this very night, before a cock crows twice, a cock or a rooster crows twice, shall deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, Even though I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing too. They all were saying the same thing too. They agreed with Peter. Peter said the words, but they agreed with Peter's words. And that they all ended up being scattered. They all, when Jesus was arrested, they saw the danger and they all fled. They all fled the scene of the crime of the mobs. They all fled in the same way. In this case, we have a positive example in John chapter 6 of Peter speaking up and representing the rest of the apostles. Now, I've been careful to explain this about Peter because we do have a mentality of bashing Peter, even bashing Paul, bashing Abraham, Moses, David, bashing the saints of Scripture. There seems to be a desire in our culture to lower the standard of godliness, lower the standard of holiness, and the way to do it is to undermine Abraham, undermine Moses, undermine any popular saint in Scripture, male or female, to undermine them so that we don't have to live up to God's holy expectations. People will say, well, Paul was a sinner. Although, having said, people saying that, there is no single example that I am aware of where Paul commits an obvious sin, an obvious egregious sin. There's no one example of Paul doing that. Though some people say Paul was a sinner, so we're all sinners. So don't be so uptight about living a holy life, they say. But was it true of Paul? I cannot think of a single example of the Apostle Paul doing something like David committing adultery and murder. Paul didn't do that. I don't even think Joseph in Egypt, as the governor of Egypt, that Joseph is on record doing that. Daniel's not on record doing that. In the book of Daniel, Daniel the prophet, he's not on record doing that. So why is it that we have to say things that are untrue factually in order to justify our actions. Why? Because they are wicked actions and we're diminishing the authority of these examples in Scripture. We should not do that. We have to strive for perfection. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. So Peter says, 
Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? Peter and the rest, they understood that Christ was the only source of salvation. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, John 14, 6. Peter understood John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. They understood 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. They understood these truths that were true of them and true of everyone all around the world. There is no other place to go for salvation. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 They understood these truths. That's why they clung to Christ. But what did the crowds not understand? They thought, no, Christ is not the only way. That's why they walked away from him. We'll get there some other way. We'll all get to heaven. That's what they believed. We'll all get to heaven one way or another. Further, verse 68. How did Peter know? And how did the rest know? You have words of eternal life. You have words of eternal life. Though Peter needed to have a new heart, and he did by this point, he had a new heart. When he had this new heart, he knew where eternal life is found, found only in Christ. Christ was preaching the words of eternal life, like verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. He knew where to find it because the new heart knows where to find it. The unbelieving, stubborn and stony heart thinks Jesus is not the only way. Jesus' words are not the only words that I must know, that I must read, that I must study. They think their own words. They think their own thoughts. They think the thoughts of other men, other religions, other philosophies are good enough to have eternal life. But no, only Christ has these words. He has these words not only in the red letters of our Bibles, but Jesus is the source of all the letters of the Bible according to 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. Because there it says that the prophets had the Spirit of Christ within them as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11 says, the prophets, what we would say the, the black letters or the rest of the Bible, apart from the red letters, were all written by the Spirit of Christ. If the Spirit of Christ wrote them, wrote them then they are also the words of Christ. And there's no other place to go for eternal life. Not other religions, only in Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. That's where they're found. And yet they walked away. Just like Adam and Eve forfeited their life in paradise in the Garden of Eden by their one sin. In this case, these people also walk away from the one who created the Garden of Eden and the one who will provide us with the eternal Garden of Eden, Jesus Christ. They walk away. Verse 69, not only do they believe in eternal life, it says, verse 69, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of of God. You are the Holy One of God. They understood that Christ is this Holy One. Firstly, the identity of Christ as holy. They understood it, but it was not impossible, not impossible for sinful men to understand it, 
and yet reject it. How do we know that? Because sinful spirits also know. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, 21. Mark 1, 21 to 24. Here we have a sinful spirit or an unclean spirit, a fallen angel or demon. Mark 1, 21. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their as the scribes. And just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God. Peter, the believer, understood Christ to be the Holy One of God. The demons understood Christ to be the Holy One of God. Therefore, it's not unreasonable to know that the people understood Christ to be preaching holiness. Certainly, they knew Christ to be preaching holiness. And that's why they walked away. There will be, ultimately... One reason, and perhaps two, if we want to separate the one reason. The reason that people refuse to believe in the gospel. And perhaps we could divide it into two issues. The one issue is that once we know the holiness of God, once we know the holiness of God, His ultimate perfection, His ultimate purity, that He is holy, distinct, and unique, and that we must believe it and therefore reject our unholiness, our filthiness, our sin because of God. If we have a stubborn, unbelieving heart, we will fall away from the living God. We will walk away from that truth. I said if we break it up into two parts. The holiness of God in reference to our sin. But when a preacher says that you are sinning. And he says, thus says the Lord with the authority of scripture. He shows you from the Bible that such and such is a sin. Then the hearer, he won't want to hear, thus says the Lord, in reference to the sin he loves. And then he'll say, that's hard. That's a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? He's going to walk away. Eventually he will walk away because his conscience will not be able to bear up with the thought that his sin, the sin he loves, is actually against the holiness of God and therefore he does not possess salvation. He will never have salvation. He might look for another way of salvation. He might say, well, if I just don't hear it anymore, I'll walk away and it'll make me at least feel good until I die. People actually think that way. They don't want to hear the truth of the holiness of God. And where is this holiness manifested? In Jesus Christ. That's why... They say there, you are the Holy One of God in Jesus Christ, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Perfect, undefiled, unblemished, holy. This is Jesus Christ. Um, Hebrews 7, 27 and 28. This is the Jesus Christ who died on the cross. That's why when they hear about the cross, when they hear about dying for our sins, The people know, therefore, I have to reject my sins. So I don't want to reject my sins. Therefore, I don't want to believe he died on the cross for my sins. I'll just walk away. Now, those who are the most deceptive, those who are the most most corrupt in the way that they handle this, 
They will say, they will give lip service. Yes, I believe God is holy. Yes, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But because he died on the cross for my sins, I have permission to live in sin. They are the most corrupt and most deceptive of people. When they say, because Jesus died on the cross for my sins, that gives me allowance, that gives me permission to continue in my sin. And they come up with various doctrines or various names and labels to describe their belief. And they will even use biblical words, such as New Covenant Theology, Dispensationalism. They will come up with words like that to give a sound that it seems to be from the Bible, or it is from the Bible because this is what the Bible teaches. It teaches New Covenant, doesn't it? Of course it does. Hebrews chapter 8 teaches the New new Covenant. Yes, it does, but what does it mean? They'll also say the law of love. The law of Christ. The law of Christ or the law of love. Or they'll even say the law of liberty. These are all biblical words and phrases. They'll use those, but then they will distort the meaning of those words in context to justify continuing in sin. Yes, I believe Jesus died for my sins. And now quit talking about it and leave me alone. That's their attitude towards it. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the opposite is true. If we understand God to be holy, we will cherish His holiness and want to please Him. We will be trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, as the Apostle says. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord throughout our life. That's the way the remnant thinks. That's the way the small group thinks in the proper way. Trying to learn what is pleasing. Now, an illustration in verses 70 to 71 of someone who pretended longer than the crowds who were fed by Christ. The crowds, they pretended for a few days, perhaps a week or two. That's how long the crowds pretended with Christ. And sometimes today, people will pretend that long. In the case of Judas Iscariot, verses 70 to 71, he pretended for about three and a half years while being an apostle, a disciple of Christ. In that sense, he was in the smallest group or one of the smallest groups. He was among the 12 and he pretended for three and a half years. I say he pretended We'll show that in just a moment. First, here in verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The betrayer. That's who Judas was. Firstly, we see in verse 70, 70, did I myself not choose you? They did not choose Christ. John chapter 1 narrates that. Christ chose them. Now, Christ chose them in what sense? He chose them as the 12, as the 12 apostles, those who would follow him, those who would learn from his teaching, those who would be empowered by him to perform miracles, those who would have the accurate, faithful doctrine preached. And that doctrine they would preach to others. They were the twelve, they were the apostles, and they were chosen in that sense. Eleven of them were chosen unto salvation, but one of them was not. One of them was not chosen unto salvation. He says, one of you is a devil. Jesus knew at the very time who the one was. One of you is a devil. The rest of the apostles did not know at the time. Jesus knew at the time that one of you is a devil. Is a devil means has a demon 
or has an evil spirit, and eventually Satan himself entered Judas. The scripture says in Luke 22, Luke 22, verse 3. This happened This happened in Luke 22 when they were about to participate in the Passover feast. 22.3, it says, And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. It says, Satan entered Judas. So Judas belonged to the devil. Judas had an evil spirit. And Judas was eventually possessed by Satan. Who be- and then the two of them, Satan in Judas, betrayed Christ. This is who Judas was. He was possessed by an evil spirit, a demon. Jesus knew it, the others did not. Well, after John the Apostle learned this, verse 71, he tells us, he clarifies for us who he meant. Now, he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him, which we find out later in the book of John and elsewhere. Later, he did betray Christ. Judas betrayed Christ. Why is John telling us this specifically? Because people are apt to misinterpret the words of Christ. Sometimes in Scripture, the prophet, the apostle, or Christ himself will say something, and shortly thereafter, we'll find an explanation. Because when the word gets out, the popular saying of Christ gets out, people misunderstand what he said, But if we read carefully, we'll find an interpretation. Keep your place here and turn to John 21. John 21, where this happened again. John 21, 22. John 21, 22. Jesus announced what would go on or what would happen to Peter, how he would die. But he did not say what was going to happen to John the Apostle and how he was going to die. And Peter was curious. Okay? So verse 22, John 21, 22. Jesus said to him, If I want him, meaning John the Apostle, to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Let's read that carefully. Verse 21. If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. 23, this saying therefore went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? What did the disciples think? The brethren among the disciples think? They thought, oh, Jesus meant John the disciple, John the apostle, is not going to die when Jesus returns. He's going to live as long as he needs to live until the return of Christ. But Jesus didn't mean that. Jesus meant, if I want him to remain, meaning he could do it if he wanted to do it, but he didn't say he was going to do it. He said, I have the power to do it. The brethren misunderstood. In the same way, we can easily misunderstand about Judas Iscariot. So let's avoid misunderstanding Judas. Why do I say that? Because many interpret Judas to be a temporary betrayer, a temporary devil, that he did not remain in unbelief until death, and he did not go to hell, or will not go to hell. Judas Iscariot 
is saved. People think that. But we cannot think that. There will always be, even in the small group of the faithful, ones who do not believe and who reject the faith. Judas is one example of that. Let's show that Judas remained an unbeliever until he died. John, John chapter 13. John chapter 13. This is at the last Passover when they're participating in eating the meal. And just before it, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And we pick it up at verse 10. 13, 10. Jesus said to him, said to Peter, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Who's the one who's unclean? Judas Iscariot. Verse 18. Verse 18. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And that quote is a quote from Psalm 41, verse 9. Psalm 41, verse 9. It was predicted that Judas would betray Christ. And therefore, it says, it was necessary for this to happen that the Scripture may be fulfilled. To fulfill Scripture, Judas would betray Christ. Now, one might say... This was not permanent. This was not eternal. John 17 will answer that. John 17, John 17, 12. John 17, 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That the scripture might be fulfilled, the son of Perdition, which scripture he means Psalm 41, 9. So in chapter 13, when he says that the scripture may be fulfilled, he says it here also that the scripture may be fulfilled. What does he mean? The scripture's fulfillment means that he would permanently or eternally perish. And we know that from chapter 17, verse 12. He says he completed his guarding of the 11 disciples. He says, I guarded them. He completed it. But wait a minute. Jesus is praying in the garden. He hasn't been arrested yet. He hasn't been crucified yet. They haven't died yet. And yet he says, I guarded them. He's speaking like a prophet, past tense, because of the future reality that is guaranteed 100% by God, because God saves whomever, and he saves them with an everlasting salvation. That's why he's saying it that way. I guarded them. It's done. It's already completed. In the same way, the opposite is true of Judas. In verse 12, not one of them perished. Past tense. Past tense also. But Judas hasn't died yet. Jesus did not even die on the cross yet. Yet he speaks of Judas as son of perdition, son of destruction, punishment, hell, and in the sense that he perished. He's already a candidate for hell, the lake of fire and destruction. He's already that. He perished. Do we know that he perished? Yes. 1 John 3. 1 John 3 uses the example of Cain and Abel. 1 John 3 uses this example of Cain and Abel. What did Judas end up doing to take away his life? He committed suicide or self-murder, right? Self-murder is the same as suicide. 
He did not commit a crime worthy of the government putting him to death, right? He did not commit such a crime, so he should not have put himself to death, and nobody should have put himself to death. But Judas did. He hanged himself, it says in Matthew 27, 3-5. He hanged himself and he died. Matthew 27, 3-5. So who commits murder, even self-murder? 1 John 3, 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. Who's the evil one? Satan. Wasn't Judas of Satan too? He was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. No murderer has eternal life remaining or continuing staying in him. It does not exist. So Judas was a murderer. He murdered himself. For these reasons, and there's also more, but for now, these are sufficient, I believe, to show that Judas was lost forever, perished forever. What have we learned? We learned that we must cling to Christ, cling to Him, regardless of the actions of people, whether in the large group or in the small group, cling to Christ, the truths of Christ. His words. He's the only source of salvation. Even if it means rejecting our sins. Let's be holy like He was. Let's follow Him faithfully until the end. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.